podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. What's new? (laughs) Not much. (laughs) I um, got to read some of In the Time of the Butterflies poolside in Palm Springs in the 80-degree weather. We very safely drove out there, fully vaccinated. It was delightful. And yeah. It was it was lovely. This book was lovely. The setting was lovely. Always nice to be back home, but it's good to get a little break. How how about you? Those are ideal reading <laughs> conditions. <laughs> Absolutely. I did start reading the book in the 60 degree sunshine on my deck with a blanket over me. So that was nice. Mm-hmm. Not quite the same as a pool, no. but it was nice. <laughs> And I kind of alternated reading the book and listening to the audiobook just as time allowed because I've had a busy couple of weeks, but I really liked the book. So making time for it was easy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is not really why we picked this book, but I'm finding this to be like a real pleasure of doing this podcast is finding these modern classics that certainly weren't like old enough or hadn't stood the test of time long enough to be taught in high school or college when I was in high school or college, but then are backlist enough that I just haven't picked them up as an adult reader. There are, there are so many books like that, that like were published in the eighties and nineties and maybe early two thousands. And it's really fun to get to go back and discover them. It is. This book, In the Time of the Butterflies, was on the, I think it was maybe in the 10th grade curriculum where I taught, because I think that that year was world literature or something like Mm -hmm. that. And so I remember very distinctly talking with one of the 10th grade teachers, because I I was teaching 9th grade most years, but I did teach 10th grade one year. And I remember talking to the other 10th grade teacher about the book selections. And I remember her saying, in the time of the butterflies is really boring. And I don't like teaching it because the kids never get into it. So she didn't. So I was like, oh, well, then I guess I just won't attempt to read it and include it. And that, yeah. So that was my like initial experience with the book. I That's why I haven't read it until now. And I really liked it now. But I do think that as a teen, it's a longer book. I can totally see where, like, if I was 16 and reading this, I don't know that I would really get into it. There's a lot of detail. I think I think it could get boring for a teenager. So I can see that. Yeah, I I can too. Uh, as always, like it totally depends on how the teacher approaches it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the freshman curriculum at the school I taught at, but I never taught freshmen. But I heard a lot about in the time of the butterflies. Actually, the the girls that I t- 
taught really talked about this book fondly. And in my women in literature class, which was a senior elective, we would start the first day of the semester by putting on, you know, two halves of the whiteboard, all the books they'd read in the curriculum written by men and all the books they'd read in the curriculum written by women and kind of look at the balance, but also ask larger questions about like, you know, what would you learn learn about men if looking at these books versus like, what do these books kind of reveal about women's stories? And this book was really an outlier because it was the first thing that came to mind for them as a book written by a woman. And it has four really heroic female characters who like love stories are part of their lives. Children are part of some of their lives, but that's not the focus. And so it it was actually really interesting that they started their high school experience with a book like this. And then these kind of books almost all but disappeared over the course of the high school curriculum. So I'd say I'm in favor of this being in high school classes, but it has to be the right class, the right age level, the right teacher, because there are parts that can get slow for sure. I agree. And I I also think that there are a lot of opportunities for content warnings in the book. I mean, I was expecting some of that because it's about living under a repressive dictatorship regime. But um, I don't know that, that the other thing is teens often love books like that that have a, you know, dash of sex, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of violence even though we don't want to like glorify these things when they should be content warnings, that's what keeps kids reading often. So I, I mean, I think that this was, you know, like you said, not every teacher should teach every book. If they don't like it, then maybe they shouldn't be teaching it. That's great. I am fine with not having taught this, but I'm really, really glad that I read it now. And I am glad to have read it as an adult who just has a little bit more life experience to be mm-hmm. able to really connect with these women and connect with their characters. Because I loved the opening chapters and the coming of age story, mm-hmm. but I also felt like that was pretty short. Yeah, it was. And I was expecting that to be more of the book. So I was surprised by that. Let's um, let's maybe give a little bit of plot summary and then we can get into more of the details here. There will be quote unquote spoilers for this story, for this book, but we think that's okay for a couple of reasons. One, this is based on a true story. The four main figures in this book are historical figures and and Julia Alvarez really follows their life trajectory extremely closely. So that's one reason. The other is that the first chapter of the book basically tells you how the book ends. (laughs) And then you spend the rest of the book getting to that point. So these four sisters, known as Las Mariposas, the Butterflies, are Minerva, Patria, Maria Teresa, and Dede. And the book is actually dedicated to Dede, who I believe Julia Alvarez spoke with and interviewed and communicated with in order to corroborate some of the stories that she was telling in the book. Yeah. So Day Day only passed away, I think, in 2014. So 
Yeah. It's, yeah. it's crazy how historical this book feels. And it's really quite present in many ways. Yeah, not that long ago. So in 1960, three of the sisters, the butterflies, were found in a wrecked Jeep. And this was an assassination because the sisters had been speaking out and running underground schemes and basically fighting and organizing against this dictatorship because they wanted freedom and democracy for themselves because they had big dreams that they wanted to achieve, but also for their children and for their country. And so what Julia Alvarez does is take these real life figures who are incredibly, incredibly important in the Dominican Republic. They are martyrs. They are major heroes in the Dominican Republic. And she she takes them and she gives them very real human backstories. And I I love that. I think she she takes these women who can I'm sure be cast in the history books as angels, as martyrs, as the the Joan of Arc of the Dominican Republic and just gives them such realistic, down-to-earth, feminist, beautiful life stories that really flesh out who they are as characters. And of course, that's in part fictionalized, but she also did a lot of research and based this on real people. I really enjoy historical fiction based on real people and Real events, I mean, like specific real events where authors work in realities that you get to to learn a lot of history from. But this really, it didn't feel like getting a history lesson. It really felt character driven. Like you were saying, she makes these women or not makes them, they were real people, but she acknowledges that and honors them in their complexity and their wholeness instead of solely focusing on um, on their heroic acts, which there were, of course. Yeah, and to be honest, the heroism and the action and the fighting the dictatorship was the least interesting part of the book for me. Yeah, I actually, I, I, I feel the same. I, um, I will say my parents met in the Dominican Republic. They did the Peace Corps there. And... My grandfather and uncle ended up falling in love with the Dominican Republic and moving there. So I've spent some some time there and have Dominican cousins. And it's a it's a wonderful place. And Trujillo is like still talked about a lot, at least in my, you know, American Dominican family and how much he and a wide variety of ways impacted the the country and Haiti as well. And so that was interesting to me for sure. Like I'd really hadn't studied that. I hadn't read all that much more about it. I had read a couple of books that my Dominican family have recommended over the years. But so I, I enjoyed that part, like just knowing the little I did about his atrocities like I loved seeing these four 
girls just really stick it to him in the ways that they were able to. (laughs) Um, But I completely agree that what I fell in love with in the book was not the adventure. It was these girls, these characters and their love for each other. I I definitely enjoyed learning about the history and sort of taking a Wikipedia Google deep dive afterwards and yep. just doing some of the fact checks and reading more. And that's the fun part of historical fiction or even historical nonfiction. So it's yeah, when I say that those were the least interesting parts to me, it's not that they it's not that I was bored by them or that they weren't interesting. But it's that the characters were so compelling and it was just their voices that I loved, particularly in the early chapters as these girls are growing up, coming of age, having their eyes opened to Trujillo's dominance and violence when, you know, as young girls they they didn't necessarily see all of that they were just in their own little worlds as kids often are and just sort of watching the blinders come off and watching their journeys from girlhood to adulthood and motherhood as well that was just the most compelling part to me and I marveled at how Julia Alvarez managed to give each of these sisters her own voice throughout the novel. We will get to this when we get into the pairings, but she just does so much in this novel. I couldn't come up with a single pairing that does all of the things that she manages to do in here. I had to kind of like select bits and pieces to to hit on Um, because like you said, yeah, she's she's doing so much and maybe we should talk about the sisters and kind of who who each of them are. And one of the things I loved is how each of them came to these revolutionary ideas on such different paths. We have four sisters. Of, this is, like we said, based on a, a true story. But of course, calls to mind. Anytime there are four girls, I think we American women readers Little women comes to mind, and we <laughs> think about how each of these sisters is, um, you know, both a loving sister and is seen relationally with her, the rest of her family, but is very much her own person. And that is very much the case with the Maribel sisters. Mm-hmm. Should we start with Day Day since the book opens with her? Yeah. And opens with her in the present day, and we get. I think it's a commonly used device now, but I don't think it was when Julia Alvarez wrote this. I think she did so much that we see now in historical fiction that she might have been the first, actually. But we see a journalist going to interview Dede, the survivor. And from there, we get flashbacks and we get different perspectives. And it reads very much like the historic kind of historical fiction that you can pick up off the shelf at Target these days. But, oh gosh, it's so good. So we get to see Day Day and her reluctance to talk to this person and dredge up old wounds, of course, but also sort of the feeling that it is her duty as the survivor in order to tell the stories, keep her sister's memories alive. And sort of serve her country in this way as the survivor because Mm -hmm. 
she is the most reluctant sister to join the cause. Mm-hmm. And she blames that on her husband. And that's like in part true that he's reluctant as well. But that's her excuse that she uses as her sisters are fighting and being imprisoned. And she's just sort of staying back a little bit and holding back more. She has a lot of survivor's guilt. And she becomes out of out of that guilt and I think out of real appreciation, respect, and admiration, I think, for what her sisters did, the protector and purveyor of, of their story and their legacy. But I, I think one thing that is clear from both the book and subsequent Googling that I did is that she was very intent on not turning them into those perfect images of of martyrs. And we'll get into some of the sisters, but for for example, Patria, the eldest sister, was the most religiously devout for much of her life, but she had kind of a crisis of faith. And Dede was very insistent on not hiding that from Patria's children and and from um, the cultivation of of their story. And I think that's really such a lovely way that the character and seemingly real person honored their their sisters as full people. And I do have to wonder if part of that has to do with the regime that they were fighting and seeing what happens when you strip someone of their humanity to put them on a pedestal Mm -hmm. and when you don't see them and they don't let you see themselves as a fully realized human being, but instead something to be worshipped and obeyed at all costs and idolized as icons. And I do wonder if that is part of the resistance and the importance of keeping her sister's memories alive as real human beings with complications and imperfections because they all saw the flip side of that, of what happens when, I mean, granted, it's not like they were tyrants, but what happens when someone is in that position and becomes an icon instead of a human being? Yeah, resistance in storytelling and vulnerability is a different type of resistance. And it's certainly something we see from from Day Day as she works to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And so we start with her in the present day and and then the rest of the book is until the till the end kind of told through ongoing flashbacks where we alternate between the sisters' points of view. And Alvarez does such a good job of giving each sister a unique voice. Um, So the oldest sister is Patria. And as we mentioned, she is, at least at the beginning of of the novel, the most fervently religious. The Mirabelle sisters come from a wealthy-ish family and a pretty privileged family. And so they are sent to boarding school, a convent school, and Patria is intent on becoming a nun. And then she has this sexual awakening, which I found so beautifully written and really fascinating. It also is one of those things 
that reading this, I was kind of surprised that the, that the Catholic school that I taught at let the kids read this in a yeah. good way, <laughs> in a good way. Um, but yeah, she starts having these like pretty sensual dreams and she realizes she doesn't want to close off that part of herself and that she can still have a relationship with God while still honoring that sensual sexual side of her of her womanhood. Yeah, I found her story and every time that she appeared just so compelling and I think that that faith struggle was so well written and so nuanced in such a beautiful way and it wasn't like she had one faith struggle to overcome. She has several throughout the novel and you see her waver back and forth and become really devout again and change her faith. And I found her um, her use of prayer to be so both entertaining and compelling. And I don't know, I just really, really appreciated her as a character. And she seems to have, I mean, out of the four sisters, I think we could say that she has the happiest most fulfilling marriage, which is also lovely on the page. And maybe it's just because she's the oldest. She certainly seems the most motherly. She's a wonderful character. And she she really, it, it, all of the women experience hardships. And you, you alluded to this. Many of them are in quite difficult marriages in, in various ways. Um, she's very maternal towards her sisters, and we also get to see her being called to be a mother. And as a as a content warning, and this happens early in the book, she loses a child in infancy, which really shakes her her faith, but also really bonds her with her family. And and I think maybe ultimately opens her faith in a way that allows her to participate in the revolution in the way that she does. When she starts seeing Trujillo's regime as a crisis of faith and humanitarian conflict and not just about politics. And it's just a really remarkable journey she undergoes. Yeah, and she mourns that loss her entire life. And she, one of the most, I don't know, compelling passages that I remember, and this is probably a part that I listened to, so I can't look at my book and cite it, but she is witnessing an act of violence and projects basically Mm -hmm. that the victim is her child that she lost. And she says that she feels like that same pain and her mother's heart being ripped out. And she says that was my baby. And it just seems like she channels that motherly instinct into the fight. Mm-hmm. And I really, I loved that because I just don't think you get to see so many books are about women really struggling with motherhood, holding them back from something. I don't know that we often get women in literature for whom motherhood is a catalyst or 
something that really pushes them to a higher self or a higher cause. And I just found that, I don't know, I just really liked that part of the book for all of these sisters. Alvarez does such a wonderful job of showing the strength in their femininity and femininity in various forms not being something they have to reject or overcome to participate in the cause, but something that gives them a particular strength and perspective and really fuels them. And yeah, I think that that's a great example of, of Patria in that, that regard. The sister who probably rejects femininity <laughs> the most is Minerva. Yes. She wants to be a lawyer. She wants to go to law school. She wants to be the first woman to do all of these things. And she's not so sure about love and marriage, but she does realize ultimately she doesn't want to be lonely as she's fighting a cause. She wants Mm -hmm. to fight a cause alongside someone, but she is more resistant to traditional roles than her sisters are. She also seems to know how to use her sexuality and femininity, I don't know, to kind of gain power or manipulate situations. And I'm not using manipulate negatively there. She she is empowered by it. Mostly it gets her, she, she struggles with that as well in various parts, but she seems to be able to kind of channel that aspect of her herself in an interesting way. And she she is the first sister to become involved. And I love that it's because of, even though she ends up, you know, really involved with a group of men in terms of her revolutionary activities, it's a female friend whose story leads her to see kind of the, the evils of Trujillo's reign. And that friendship is what led her there. And I think it's so many stories with women spies or women revolutionaries. It's a romance that kind of leads them there. And I like that friendship was was the entry point for Minerva. Yeah. And at an early age and it sticks. Yeah. <laughs> like once, once she's radicalized, I guess you could say. <laughs> It sticks and that is who she is and that is how she is going to move forward. And that is like her life's mission from that point forward. And yeah, she, I mean, I loved reading about her in those earlier chapters and then sort of my attention shifted to preferring one sister over the other, depending on what life phase they were all in. Mm -hmm. But I loved reading Minerva's first few coming of age chapters. And particularly we get this really wonderful scene where they all go to a party and she dances with Chuhio and it's very dramatic and tense and we just get to sort of see her be fiery and bold and it was a delightful chapter mm-hmm. yeah and that really is a turning point for the rest of the book and I I love the way her family rallies around her and supports her fieriness and her her choices for for the most part of course like you know there are questions about cause and effect and where would we be but but she's not her personality isn't 
tamped down by her family. And I really love that. We just have to talk about the baby, right? I loved her. And I loved... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I loved that her sections were told in journals, which made them, I think, extra sweet in a way. And we mm-hmm. we got to know Maria Teresa maybe even a little more intimately than the three other sisters. I just found her voice to be so completely delightful. Yeah. I just loved her little journal entries. And I think there, yes, there is totally a sweetness there, especially when we first meet her because she is the youngest of the family and she, you can just, that youth oozes out of the journal entries. It's totally dear diary. Here's what I did today. (laughs) And she's telling on her sisters. Yeah. And and she's quite a bit younger than them. So she's clearly babied. She has basically three additional moms um, and her, her real mother. So she's, she's, I loved her diary entry where she listed all of the birthday presents that she got. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so cute. And I love that the format stayed the same. So ultimately that first journal that she has is disposed of because it contains incriminating information. And I loved that the format stayed the same, that she consistently kept picking up a journal, even though it was very risky Mm -hmm. to have a written record of what was going on. And she says that many times, like, I really shouldn't be doing this. (laughs) This is going to be bad if someone finds it. But I loved that the format stayed the same. It was a really great way to break up the novel. I mean, it's just a genius narrative move from Alvarez, but also just really delightful to read in that format. I loved it. I loved her. And I loved that what leads her into the revolution is her adoration for Minerva, which makes total sense from a a baby Mm -hmm. sister that, you know, as each sister is kind of coming into their own politically in various ways. For her, it really is about this little bit of hero worship for her big sister. Yeah, it's really sweet. And I was actually like finishing listening earlier today and I didn't expect there to be like these, this hint of queerness in the novel either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we get that with Maria Teresa who has an encounter with a friend in prison, but also like, I don't know the way that it was handled in the novel was really fascinating to me. And I, it made me see her character previously in a completely new light because she's very hesitant about, even though she desperately wants what her sisters have, she wants to have a family, she wants to get married. She's very hesitant about she is very hesitant about relationships with men. And um, all of a sudden, I just felt like my eyes were open. I was like, oh, my goodness. Of course, there you can totally have this queer reading of this book. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, for good reason, her hesitancy. Because I, I think that, yeah. right, another, um, like, dictatorship that is portrayed throughout this entire book is the patriarchal system that these sisters find themselves living in and how many husbands cheat or are abusive or it's their just own father, their own father has a whole other family. I mean, it's just, it's a lot. And so we can totally understand 
her hesitancy. And I think that queer reading is 100% available to us. This book, it's not that old, but it still feels really ahead of its time in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Alvarez is still writing. Yeah. We'll get more from her. Maybe we should end before we get into our pairings with just a like, who should pick this up? What kind of readers? Because I am sure many of our listeners have already read this, but I would imagine there are a lot of readers out there like us who have, you know, seen this book around, heard of it, but just for whatever reason, not picked it up. So what kind of readers would you recommend this one to? I mean, certainly historical fiction readers. Yes. A book that this isn't one of my pairings, but that I was thinking about as I was reading was The Alice Network. Yeah, I was going to say Kate Quinn fans. Yeah, I think that her books, she does this really great job of taking real women from history, but not necessarily the super well-known ones, Mm -hmm. and making them fully realized humans and characters and just... I don't know, exposing these moments from history in a really compelling way, alternate perspectives and timelines that feel really well done. There are some historical fiction books that I feel like the alternating timelines, it just feels like the authors felt like that's what they were supposed to do with historical fiction. Mm -hmm. But there are authors who really take advantage of that format and do it so well like Alvarez does. And I think that Kate Quinn is one of those authors who does a great job with the alternating perspectives and timelines. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I I think if you loved The Nightingale, you should pick this up. I mean, similar like female resistance in there and sisters who exercise their resistance in different ways from each other and kind of have to learn that that's okay. Um, And then I, I, I... echo just historical fiction fans, but I I do think that there are so many historical fiction fans who are a little burnt out of European historical fiction and specifically World War II historical fiction. And there are there's so much historical fiction that's not those. But those are right, the display tables at Barnes and Nobles, and they're just kind of what are pushed towards us. And this is a great work of historical fiction about a time and place that is much less represented, at least in terms of what we have easy access to as as American readers. So I listened to some of this on audio, and the audio was pretty good, but it was kind of old. You could hear the person, like, breathing and (laughs) making noises as they were, like, changing characters, which I don't begrudge them at all, but that's edited out of audiobooks typically. Um, So you can tell that it was an older recording, but it was pretty good. But if you want audiobook recordings that do not feature the heavy breathing in between chapters, we just have to recommend our favorite audiobook subscription service, Libro FM, because they're our absolute favorites. They are our favorites. One of the pairings I'm going to talk about today was an ALC I got from Libro FM, so I'll save that. But I also just finished before we pressed record, Chelsea Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space by Amanda LaDuke, which I mean, the subtitle tells you it all she explores 
the history of fairy tales and the way disability is portrayed in them and kind of pushes back against it and advocates for the importance of disability representation. If you listeners loved our fairy tale episodes, if you loved The Bloody Chamber, she has a whole chapter about The Bloody Chamber in this book, you have to give it a listen. I'm glad that that one is so good on audio because that's been on your TBR for a while. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, if you want to join us in our Libro FM listening club, you just have to sign up for a subscription. And with our code Novel Pairings, you can get two audiobooks for the price of one. So we will put a link in our show notes for that, or you can just go to Libro FM, sign up for a membership, and use code Novel Pairings to get your extra audiobook and start supporting local bookstores with your listens. All right, Chelsea, I can't wait to hear what you are pairing with in the time of the butterflies. Oh man, they're, it's almost like they're, like you said before, Alvarez is doing so much in this book that no single pairing could encompass all of it or perfectly match up. But there are a lot of books that connect with an element of In the Time of the Butterflies. So it's like nothing felt fully satisfying. I love all of my parents. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they're all doing like a couple of the things or in conversation with her for sure. But yeah, I I couldn't hit on just that perfectly satisfying pairing for this one. Okay, so the first one I'm going to talk about is pretty satisfying because it's from one of our favorite authors. And we are now, we have officially recommended and paired every Elizabeth Acevedo book on the podcast. So check. We're done now. Okay, because, that's good to know. <laughs> right? <laughs> because I think Clap When You Land is a lovely pairing for In the Time of the Butterflies. I actually think any Acevedo would pair really well, partly because I just think that her writing style in writing characters who are coming of age, discovering their sexuality, grappling with faith and family and grief and tragedy just matches so well. And Elizabeth Acevedo is a Dominican-American author like Julia Alvarez. She is writing in her legacy. And so I think that any of her books pair so well with In the Time of the Butterflies. And if you like Acevedo, you'll like Alvarez and vice versa. But Clap When You Land specifically, I think connects with this book because of these sisters who don't know about each other. There's that sort of father has two different families element to it. And there is just this sense of tragedy that pervades the book. And these sisters come together through really horrible, a really horrible event. And their coming of age journey is really tied to that. And I think that that matches up with this book so well, but I had to recommend Elizabeth Acevedo with Julia Alvarez and just make sure that we had an amazing Dominican American author here. And Elizabeth Acevedo is just one of our favorites. So we are Three for three checked off and we're waiting for her, her new book to recommend and pair with another one. All right. My first pairing is Dominicana by Angie Cruz. This was an Aspen words, long listed book 
two years ago, I think maybe in, in 2019. And this is actually a book about a young Dominican girl who moves to New York City and it takes place around the same time period. It takes place in 1965. So I thought it'd be a really interesting pairing to look at a young Dominican girl who finds herself in the U.S., whereas we see these girls coming of age in the Dominican Republic. Of course, um, we didn't mention this earlier, but a year after the Mirabel sisters die, Trujillo is assassinated and it sends the country into political turmoil. So even though Dominicana is only set four years after the end of In the Time of the Butterflies, it's a totally different political time period in the Dominican Republic. So very interesting pairing chronologically like that. So this one is about Anna. She's 15 and all of her friends have grown up not really, they can't wait to leave the DR and move to New York. There's a vibrant Dominican community there, but that's really never been Anna's dream. However, she gets a marriage proposal from a man twice her age. She's hesitant about it, but he's moving to the U.S. She feels like this is an opportunity she has to say yes to. And so she leaves with Juan to move to New York. But he ends up needing to return to the DR to take care of um, his family business because, as mentioned, there's a lot of political turmoil there right now. And so Anna's kind of left on her own. I mean, she has some family there who's watching out for her, but she's all of a sudden a teenage girl living in New York and exploring this wide world that she had no experience with and really no no good understanding of. But she loves it. She loves the independence. She decides that maybe, you know, she doesn't want to stay in this marriage and she's trying to figure out what to do. So I think that this book mostly pairs well with In the Time of the Butterflies because of the coming of age story, but also for that kind of political chronology of what happens in the DR after Trujillo's assassination, and then looking at immigration to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic um, and how, like the characters in Clap When You Land, there's still this close tie to, to the DR and, uh, and almost a, another Dominican Republic in terms of community in New York. So I, I think readers of In the Time of the Butterflies would find Dominicana to be a really interesting follow-up. Ooh, I love thinking of those as follow-up reads. Yeah. Well, I have another follow-up read, so got you covered. (laughs) (laughs) What's next for you? Okay, I have a memoir in translation. It was originally published in 1945, and Pushkin Press re-released it. I have gotten so much mileage out of Pushkin Press books on this podcast because of that nonfiction bundle that I purchased from them. I got four books and this is my third one that I'm recommending on the podcast. I love that too, because they're such undiscovered gems and our listeners love that. And I do too. (laughs) (laughs) So this one is, um, it's by Benin 
And she originally wrote it in French, has since been translated. But she grew up in Azerbaijan. And this was in the early 20th century. So Azerbaijan is in this area where East and West meets and clashes. And so she initially, her family was poor, but like respected in society. But then they get rich from oil. And she launches into this like, super luxurious, lush lifestyle. And then it's got a lot of twists and turns. Then the Bolsheviks come and there's a revolution. There is bloodshed. There is violence and a lot of upheaval. She falls in love, but then she is forced into marriage with a horrible older man that she hates. I think that she is only 15 when she gets married. Um, And then she gets a chance to escape the situation. So there are parallels here. I just from, I'm not all the way through this memoir, just from what I've read so far, it's fascinating because This is a time and a place that I have never read about or learned about. There's not a lot of like beautiful language here. I don't know if it's the translation or if it's just like some memoirs are just a a very straightforward written account of the events. So it is fascinating. I wouldn't compare it to Alvarez and her writing style, but just the coming of age in this bloody and turbulent time, sort of the the sisters and in the time of the butterflies experience those ups and downs of, you know, moderate, comfortable living to wealth and being a part of society and then plunging down back and forth again. Um, And so I think that's a parallel here. And there is also just a strong current of religion. So Benin, when she wrote and published this, had converted to Christianity. And so there are some really strong opinions that she shares about Islam and her practicing strict Muslim family. A lot of the themes connect. It's a fascinating memoir. Mostly, I had to recommend it because it's just a book that I, I don't know, it connects, but time and place that I really hadn't read about much like in the time of the butterflies. So this is Days in the Caucasus by Benin from Pushkin Press. That sounds great. I'll be curious to hear how the rest of it goes for you. All right. My next one, I read it a while ago, maybe 10 years ago. So it is fuzzy in my memory, but it is a Dominican classic. And it's another great follow-up read to In the Time of the Butterflies and actually references the Mariposas quite frequently throughout. So this is called The Feast of the Goat by Mario Vargas Llosa. And he's a Dominican writer. The book was originally written in Spanish, but it has been translated to English. I 
cannot read in Spanish, unfortunately. Um, but this book is about an older woman, or she's not old. I think she's in her 50s. So, but it's not a coming of age story like in the time of the butterflies. But she returns to the Dominican Republic in the early 1960s. I think Winterhio is still alive, but um things are rocky for him and his assassination is imminent. And returning to the DR really fills her Ura- Urania is her name with a sense of home and belonging, but it also brings back horrible memories for her of all of the people she saw damaged and harmed by Trujillo's violence. And so it's it kind of goes back and forth in terms of her memory and what is happening now at the downfall of his regime. And then just her remembering like the power that he had and how he he used that power. She's a wonderful character from what I remember, just in terms of her absolute love and adoration for her country and culture. Um, but also just the way she remembers and looks back on on childhood and her her young adulthood in in the DR. This book, it's even though it also has a woman narrator, it reads more masculine in the sense that it is quite violent. Um, and I, I there's definitely violence in, in the time of the butterflies, but it's just presented maybe in a softer way, even though some of it is hard to read. This the violence is stark on the page here. Um, so keep that in mind if you do decide to pick this up. This is a page turner. Like I remember really flying through it. But I also didn't realize that Vargas Llosa has won the Nobel Prize for literature. So this is like also great literature. So it's one of those kind of perfect balances of a of a book. I don't remember being like blown away by the language, but that could have just been when I read it, but that wasn't something I was looking for. Or it could be the translation. So it might be worth doing a Google search to see um, what translations are are recommended by the experts. So that is The Feast of the Goat by Mario Vargas Llosa. All right. Another historical fiction author who I think is so skilled at taking lesser known historical events and really bringing them to life is Ruta Sepetis. I think she's super talented and I think any fans of Kate Quinn would likely really enjoy her work as well. She wrote a book, Fountains of Silence, that is about the Spanish dictatorship in 1950s Spain. And I think that it's a really great fit here. So the book takes place in 1957 in Madrid. One of the protagonists is an 18-year-old young man who came to Spain with his family because they're hoping to connect with his mother's family and heritage, and he's an aspiring photographer. He meets a young woman whose family is affected by the Spanish dictatorship in a different way. And they, of course, are going to have a little bit of a romance. Um, But mostly, I think that this book just illustrates 
what life is like for young people living under a dictatorship, what it's like when their eyes are open and they realize that they are going to have to fight for what they want. Ruta Sepetis books often are told in multiple perspectives. This one is, and I think that that is a strength and a good connection with Alvarez here. So weaving different stories and different perspectives in and out, we get an illustration of the turbulent times, the violence, the tension under this Spanish dictatorship, but also just really lovely coming-of-age moments. This is YA, but I think that Ruta Sepetis writes YA that adults will love too, and given that these characters skew a little bit older, I think that if you don't typically read young adult historical fiction, this is a really good one to pick up. So that is Fountains of Silence by Ruta Sepetis. I love her, but I haven't read this one yet. But I have had it recommended to me a couple of times, so I will eventually. Um, Okay, my last one, as it often is, is my weird outlier pick. (laughs) So I just could not stop thinking about one, two, three by Laurie Frankel while I was reading In the Time of the Butterflies. Granted, I had just finished one, two, three, so it was fresh in my mind. Maybe it wouldn't have leapt to the forefront had it not been so close chronologically to when I was reading it. I apologize in advance. This book is not out until June 8th, but I know people love Laurie Frankel, and so I think um, this is also a way of saying one, two, three, I think is a great follow-up. If you loved, this is how it always is, which many readers did. One, two, three, very different, but I think Laurie Frankel's, you know, signature heart and character development, and you'll probably like this one too. So I'll give the setup and then I will explain my tenuous connection (laughs) to In the Time of the Butterflies. So this is a book about three triplets in a little town called Bourne. And we have Mab, Monday, and Maribel Mitchell. They call themselves one, two, and three. And Bourne is a different kind of town. So 17 years ago, right before the girls, the Mitchell triplets were born, there was a factory accident. It's kind of unclear as the book starts, but really figuring out exactly what happened is the point of the book. But basically, toxins from a factory have severely impacted the people of this town. We don't fully know what aspects of their lives are caused by this accident and which is just who they are. But Mab is neurotypical. Monday is on the autism spectrum and Mirabelle is in a wheelchair and communicates through a computer system. She can type but has trouble speaking. But she's like the smartest person in the town. And so we alternate between the three triplets' points of view and we learn about their boundless sisters, but it also becomes kind of a fun mystery where the three Mitchell sisters have to take charge because the plant 
is going to reopen and the town is furious after what it did to them and how it abandoned them. But it also needs the jobs. And so these these girls try to get to the bottom of exactly what happened, what's going on now. And it's just, I think what really connected this in my mind is, of course, the, the sisterhood, the alternating perspectives. But I think I will... I was sad when I finished in the time of the butterflies because I didn't want to leave these characters. And that's the same feeling I had when I finished one, two, three was just, I really had been captivated by these three sisters and I didn't want to stop hanging out with them. I just, I wanted to know more and where they were going next. And I, I just ached for their, for their stories and how beautiful their stories were. So I I think, you know, we have, Sisters with a mission who are very different people, but really committed to each other and doing right by each other, but also to bettering their community. And so that that was my connection. And then I actually think that the the back cover says this in a really great way, that the same thing could be said about in the time of the butterflies that one, two, three is about how expanding our notions of normal makes the world a better place for everyone and how when days are darkest, it's our daughters who will save us all. And I just thought that line, <laughs> whatever publisher, copywriter wrote that, it's a great line <laughs> and it's very true of one, two, three and very true of in the time of the butterflies. I will just give one quick caveat about one, two, three, which is that I thought that this book had really fantastic disability representation. Lori Frankel is not an own voices writer in that regards from what I am aware of. And I haven't yet seen many own voices reviews from people with disabilities. So we may kind of see in coming months that there are some some issues popping up with this book or ways that it could have been handled better. So if that happens, we'll we'll let you all know too. And I'll be curious to read more reviews of One, Two, Three by Lori Frankel. Oh, that sounds delightful. I have the ALC from Libro FM. I really need to listen to that one. I listened to it and it's three different narrators and it's really, really well done. Highly recommended on Libro. All right. Well, for our pick of the week, we are co-signing this one. Everybody brace yourselves. (laughs) Mark your calendars because Elizabeth Acevedo is releasing her first adult novel. I don't believe that this one is going to be written in verse. I believe it will be prose. Uh, She's not releasing it until 2023. But the news <laughs> broke that she's writing it and working on it. And here is what the little blurb says. So it is about a Dominican-American family organizing a wake for Rosa, a beloved matriarch, who is still alive and decided that she wanted the wake to take place while she is still living. And Acevedo said in the press release, This novel has been humming underneath my skin for close to a decade, and I'm delighted to share it with the world. And then blah, blah, blah about her publisher. But like, 
She speaks in poetry. I was going to say, even her <laughs> press releases right. are like better writing than you read in most novels. Oh my goodness. So we're just really excited and it's going to be so good. And because we got to wrap up our Elizabeth Acevedo pairings, we're going to keep recommending her books on the podcast, oh, yes. but <laughs> we wrapped up our pairings of her novels. We just wanted to put that one on your radar so you can keep looking for more press releases about it. But 2023, it seems so far away, but the years fly by, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> when you're not writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 2023, we'll circle back do another Elizabeth <laughs> Acevedo pairing. But, oh, it sounds so good. I cannot wait for that. So exciting. So we are not done talking about In the Time of the Butterflies because we're going to have a book club discussion about it with Classics Club. So at the end of the month, we're going to talk about it and we would love to see you there to join the Classics Club book club discussion and get live and recorded classes, access to our whole backlog of classes, plus bonus episodes every Friday. You can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and join our community, support our show monetarily, which we are incredibly grateful for. And we would just love to talk about this book in depth with you in Classics Club. To learn about upcoming events like this, and more, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We can't wait to hear all about your experiences reading this beautiful book from Julia Alvarez. Be sure to tag us on Instagram at novelpairingspod if you share your thoughts on the book. We love seeing them. And we also love to see when and where you're listening. So take a screenshot of this episode, share in your Instagram stories, and be sure to tag us. You can also spread the word about Novel Pairings by sending your friends a link to your favorite episode or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we will be back with an episode full of TBR toppling women's fiction focused on coming of age stories. So you don't want to miss that. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything.